If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're in a study of 1 John in our time together on Sunday mornings. 1 John chapter 3. I want to ask you this question, and before you immediately answer it, I want you to think about it in your mind. Don't answer it out loud, but what would you say is your greatest hope as a man or a woman? What is your hope? What is hope? How would you define hope? Maybe we start there. The Oxford English Dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope is a desire accompanied by expectation or belief of fulfillment. To hope in something is to cherish a desire with anticipation. It's to want something to happen or to want something to be true. Now, honestly, I can't think of anything more important to persevering in life than real hope. Hope is what keeps a person moving forward, even against all odds. Hope is what keeps an underdog feel as though he has a chance, even though he's outnumbered, even though he's outgunned. What is it that keeps him putting one foot in front of the other? It's hope. It's what leads someone to ride out a storm. It's what leads a person to attempt great things. Hope is what leads a person to not quit even when they're discouraged. God-given hope is a real source of strength in the midst of life's storms. To see how this is true, think about when you feel trapped, maybe in a tunnel of misery, it's hope that points to the light at the end, and it's hope that tells you it's not an oncoming train. When we're exhausted, it's hope that infuses us with fresh energy and determination. When we're tempted to fear the worst, hope is what keeps us looking for the best. When we are surrounded by chaos, hope is what tells us that God is in control. When we find ourselves unemployed, hope is what tells us that we still have a future. Or when we lose someone that we love, it's the hope that we have that gets us through our grief. Now, I imagine you would agree with me today that the world around us is drowning in a sea of hopelessness. I know you've seen the statistics and you've heard the news stories about the state of mental health. It's the epidemic or pandemic that nobody's talking about right now. What does the Scripture say even about lost humanity, how it's without hope and without God in the world? It's a terrible thing to be hopeless. Because if we're convinced that our future is bleak and dark, then it's almost impossible for us to take another step in life. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but what a person places his hope in, what he says is ultimate, this really reveals what he worships because we attach our hopes to those things that bring us the most satisfaction. And your hope is a very good indicator of what you look to for security, what you retreat into out of a sense of identity, where you run to find satisfaction. And sadly, for a lot of people, hope is nothing more than wishful thinking that doesn't go beyond the superficial stuff of life. 
And the world around us promises false hopes, and you might want to compare those false hopes to an elusive mirage in the desert, because no matter how hard you go after it or how hard you pursue it, it always remains just beyond reach. And I'm even convinced that many of us within the church have misplaced hope, the result of which is so much inconsistency in life. Misplaced hope leads us to assign ultimate value to temporary things. We take good things and we turn them into God things in our lives, all out of a sense of misplaced hope. Misplaced hope is the reason for so much confusion in our minds as to the nature of the Christian life. And somewhere along the way, we've bought into this idea that says, if my circumstances are not just right, then I can't be happy. I can't be happy unless I have a certain thing, live in a certain place, look a certain way, and so much of our hope rides upon things which are in this constant state of flux, and then that leads us to become controlled by our emotions, and Christian people should never be controlled by their emotions. It's what happens when you look to your circumstances as a quick fix in your life. The psalmist said this in Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. In good times, bad times, seasons of plenty, seasons of want. The reason David could bless the Lord in the midst of pain and adversity, the reason he could bless the Lord at all times was because he had hope that extended far beyond the temporal. It's what Peter describes as a living hope, the hope of the believer, the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that goes far beyond any crisis that we experience in life. Titus 2.13 calls it the blessed hope of the believer, the hope that we have that is ours, that will appear when Jesus Christ appears in all of his glory. This is what the apostle John is talking about in 1 John chapter 3, these first three verses. He's talking about real, lasting hope, not the kind of false hope that the world promises, not the elusive hope that's really not hope. He's talking about something that's real, something that's solid, something that is ours in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this kind of hope that he mentions, he uses that word in verse 3 here, hope. This is what keeps us looking forward with confidence whenever we're riding the roller coaster of life. <laughs> And some of you are riding that roller coaster right now. It's up and it's down. It's in a curve, it's upside down. It's climbing a hill and the bottom's getting ready to fall out. Kind of reminds me of Thunder Road. You remember that old roller coaster at Carowinds? I tore it down some years ago, but I can vividly remember you're climbing that hill, you're clickety, 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 that old wooden roller coaster. But there's a series of four signs as you're making your way up the hill. Grit your teeth said the first sign. Bear the load was the second. Enjoy your ride was the third. On Thunder Road was the fourth. And then boom. I thought about that this week. I think a lot of people are riding Thunder Road. They're gritting their teeth. They're bearing the load. They're trying to make the most of it while on this ride of life. 
and they're looking to something to give them a sense of hope, but nothing around them, nothing temporal will ever provide them with the real hope that they need. It's only in Jesus, men and women, that we find lasting, solid hope, which is an anchor of the soul according to what the Scripture says. And that's what John writes about here in 1 John 3. Look at what he says there beginning in verse 1 when he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, John says, all who have this hope in Christ, they live in a certain way. And so the hope that they have in Jesus Christ translates into everyday practical living. It informs the way that we live our life. It determines what our goals are in life. It determines our ambition in life. It gives us a sense of perspective in life. That's what hope does. So in this text, the Apostle John is describing the hope of God's children. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, the hope of God's children. Gospel hope leads us to enjoy our salvation rather than merely endure our salvation. And I think there are far too many Christians who are simply enduring their salvation. When God the Holy Spirit has come so that you might enjoy the salvation that you've been given. And to a large degree that you enjoy your salvation will be the understanding of the hope that you've been given. Your hope determines your outlook. And so that's why I come back to this question. What are you really hoping in as a person? What are you hoping in for your life right now? What is it that gets you out of bed and motivates you to attack the day with a sense of purpose as a child of God? I think if we were to ask the Apostle John that very same question, he would say this, and I can't help but hear it in the words of David Crowder, all my hope is in Jesus. That's what he's reminding the church of here in this wonderful passage. Now keep in mind, in the preceding verses, John's point is that those who are Christ's ought to abide in Him and live righteous lives so that they might have confidence, not be ashamed when Jesus returns. So our hope is connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which means that Christian hope extends far beyond all of the temporary trappings of this life. Christian hope is a matter of who we are in Christ, what we've received from Christ, what we've been promised in Christ. And so that's why John says in verse 3 that we have hope in Him. And that word he uses there for hope, it's a very important word. When we think of hope, we associate it with wishful thinking, without a guarantee that what we want will ever materialize. Earthly hope carries with it an element of uncertainty, but the word that John is using here in verse 3 is a word that speaks of certainty. It's a deeply settled confidence, confidence based upon the promises of God. It means there's no uncertainty here because if there was, we would have no basis for hope. And so Christian hope is not some pie in the sky, wishful thinking on our part. It's not dependent upon the stock market. 
It's not dependent upon the weather. My hope is not dependent upon my mood or how I'm feeling at any given moment. No, this hope that I have as a child of God is solid. It's sure, steady. It's a steadfast anchor for the soul. And so John here describes a number of things. He describes for us the way that we've come to experience this hope. He defines the expectation of this hope that we have. And then he explains for us how it's expressed in our daily living. So notice with me, number one, what John says about the experience of Christian hope. He says, behold, or see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. The idea is, this is an attention-grabbing statement that John intends for his readers. He's saying, get a load of this. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. Uh, That word, what kind or what manner. This is the same word that's used in Matthew 8, 27. When the disciples were out at sea, Jesus calms the storm, and they say, what manner of man is this? What world does this man come from? John is saying something similar here. He's saying the love that we have experienced in the Father that we've been called his children, this is something out of this world. This is something that we can't even really begin to describe. So this is a statement of amazement here that's intended to provoke worship. And essentially, within these verses, the apostle wants us to know something about what we were, what we are now, and what we will be in the future. And so hope for us, as as a Christian, it has to do with remembering what we were, knowing who we are now, and keeping in mind what we're going to be in the future. So let's just walk through this for just a moment. What does John really say about what we were? Well, the reason that this is such an amazing statement in verse 1 is that it's upon sinners that God has set his redemptive love. Why is this such a shocking statement? Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we, as in we of all people, should be called the children of God. Why does this statement provoke wonder? Well, if you think that you're such a lovable person, this statement probably doesn't provoke much wonder in your heart. You're probably thinking, yeah, God ought to love somebody like me because everybody else does. When you understand the intention behind this statement, John is saying when you consider who you were before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, when you keep in mind the fact that you were a sinner, alienated from the life of God, separated from the life of God, not part of the commonwealth of Israel, without hope, without God, undone in this world. It's an astounding, amazing thing that it's on on you that God has set his redemptive love. It's the same thing that the Lord God tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he says, you're a holy people to the Lord your God. God has chosen you to be a special people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. You were the least of the people's. But God's choice of you is because God has set his love upon you. This is the same thing that John has in mind here when he's speaking to believers. So you consider what we were. 
The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what I was before I knew Jesus. And so when you consider that, does this not make this statement that much more wonderful? Behold, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we of all people, undeserving people, should, be now, should now be called the children of God. So that's what we were. But then notice what we are now. It's through Jesus Christ that we are now members of the family of God. God calls us his own dear children. And so God's love is such that we are now the children of God. Verse 2, behold, we are God's children now, according to what John says here. I mean, how is this even possible when you consider the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins? By nature, we were children of wrath, separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. How is it possible that such hopelessly lost people could now be described as the children of God? Paul answers that question in verse 4 of Ephesians 2 when he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, God in his grace has done something. Notice the last phrase there. If you go back up to verse 29, look at that phrase, born of him, John uses. It's his description of how you and I have become the children of God. I'm born of his spirit. Entry into the family of God comes through the second birth. It's not a matter of your last name. It's not an issue of whether or not your parents brought you up in church. There's only one way into the family of God, and that's through being born again. If I were to use physical birth as an illustration of this, you know that before physical birth ever happens, there's a conception that has to take place as a male reproductive cell has to unite with a female reproductive cell. Once that happens, there's a gestation period where that tiny life begins to grow, begins to take shape and take form, which, by the way, you know, last Sunday was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say something right here at the value of life from conception. Human life from conception within the womb is precious, and it's nothing short of a miracle, nothing short of a miracle. And someone says, I would believe in God if I could see a miracle. Let me tell you something. Look in the mirror and you'll see a miracle. The fact that you're breathing, the fact that you're thinking, the fact that your heart's beating in your chest without you telling it to, that is nothing short of a miracle of heaven. Now, you know, for humans, the gestation period within the womb, this lasts nine months until there's a birth. And when that birth happens, as those tiny infant cries are first heard, all of those who are standing by begin to cry and begin to shout and begin to rejoice. Why? Because there's a birth that's taken place. Life has entered into this world. The same thing happens spiritually when children are born again into the family of God. No one says it better than James Montgomery Boyce. He says, in the same way, men and women become God's children when God the Father of his own will takes the seed of his word and plants it within the heart, causing it to unite with the ovum of saving faith, which together begin to crow. 
At this stage of God's work, those without can't tell whether spiritual life is present or not. But in time, that life within grows and the actual birth takes place as those standing by hear a public confession of faith in Christ by that newborn believer. They know of the new life and they rejoice with the Father. That's why the Scripture says that there's joy. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of heaven when one sinner repents. It's because of what happens. I can't describe it. I can't explain it. But there's nothing short of a miracle as the word of God is preached and as we share the gospel and people hear, the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ as the seed of the word is scattered and the spirit takes it and implants it within the heart and it's united with faith. There's a birth that takes place as a person becomes a member of the family of God by the power of God's spirit. That's what happened to you if you're a believer. That's how you've become a part of this forever faith family. And it's nothing short of a miracle when you consider what you were. And oh, how encouraging it is and how comforting it is when you consider now what you are by means of God's grace. The fact that the Spirit of God has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The fact that the Spirit living within us as believers now bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In the long, dark night of the soul, when you feel like the bottom has fallen out of your life, take a trip down memory lane and remember what you were before you met God. But then contemplate what you are now by means of God's redemptive grace in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that'll give you something. It'll help you through that season. But you see, it gets even better than that. John doesn't want us to just contemplate what we were and consider who we now are. (laughs) He says, let me tell you what you're going to be. Let me talk to you a little bit about the future. You've got something to look forward to. What we were what we are now. Verse 2, John talks about what we will be one day. God has a wonderfully bright future planned for his children. As a child of God who's born of him, belongs to him, what is the ultimate goal of my life? It's that I become like him. And that's exactly what John gets at there in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not yet been made manifest. We've been given some clues. We've been given some wonderful promises. But let me tell you what we know, John says. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And Paul actually writes about this very thing in the eighth chapter of Romans. In fact, flip over there for just a second. Romans chapter 8 we think of salvation, we, most of the time we think only in terms of justification, the fact that I've now been declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and how wonderful that is. But you know, salvation is so wonderfully beautiful. It involves regeneration, spiritual life that's been given. It involves justification. You've been declared righteous. It involves sanctification. You're being molded by the Spirit into the likeness of Christ And it also involves future 
glorification, which means one of these days we're going to experience the redemption of the body. It's what the New Testament writers talk about when they refer to the future resurrection that we have. It's what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says that we have a resurrection body that will be glorified, patterned in every way according to Christ's resurrection body. And so this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Look down at verse 19 where he says that creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we know that the world that we live in presently is a fallen world. The reason there's cancer and COVID, death and depression, pain, disappointment, disillusionment, evil in the world. It's because we know that we live in a sin-cursed world that's fallen. And creation itself is waiting for something that's going to happen in the future. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. What we're waiting for, what we're looking forward to, what is our hope that's in the future still, it's the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, Paul says. Now hope that's seen, it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep with words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know what that means? simply means that while we're waiting for this future hope, we've not been left as orphans in this world. The Spirit of God has come to live within us and comfort us and strengthen us and be with us in the midst of those fiery trials and circumstances of life. Verse 28 says of those trials and circumstances that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Your pain's not being wasted presently. God's not turning a deaf ear to your cry. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his promise. Now, now listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is it that God wants for your life? Well, here's the goal. It's that you be conformed to Christ. And that's going to happen. You're a believer, that's going to happen. This is your destiny. Now look at this, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Language scholars would tell you that those verbs are in the aorist tense, which basically means past tense which means it's in concrete, which means it's in stone, which means it's a settled fact, which means it's not subject to chance, which means it's not subject to the whims of a 
fallen world. The fact that these are past tense verbs, this is true of you. So listen, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. My salvation, think about it. Future glory, it's not, my hope, it's not contingent on whether or not it might happen. My hope is based upon the fact that it's happened. It's set in stone as far as God is concerned. And I'm just waiting to to become who I already became when I got saved. See, that'll bless your heart when you think about the Christian life in terms of you just becoming who you became when you, were, when you were born again. When you think about your failure and you think about your faults and you think about your flaws and why you feel like you're not fit for service, don't let the enemy tell you that. No, let me tell you who you are in Jesus Christ. You're a child. And God has a bright and wonderful future for you. And so this is the expectation then of Christian hope. The experience of hope, John deals with that. But the expectation of hope, this is what he's outlining for us there in verse number two. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. So this is a wonderful promise. This means that our hope, it's not in the world, but our hope is in Christ. Christ has not left us as orphans in a hostile environment. He's coming again. And when he comes again, he'll be coming for us. And we will be like him when we see him as he is. That's why Jesus tells his disciples there in the upper room, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's settled. That's our hope. This is sure. And I'm waiting for that day. I long for that day, but it doesn't mean that I'm less than God's child now. I'll be no more of a child of God on that day than I already am right now. The sin's going to be dealt with. There'll be no more fallen humanity to contend with when I'm given a brand new resurrection body. There'll be no more sickness, no more aches and no more pains. No more sadness and no more grief, no more depression and no more sleepless nights. Why? Because I'm going to be like him when he appears. There's mystery here. It's not yet been manifest, but the promise is there, and this is intended to be a great incentive for me as I face the challenges of life in a fallen world. That's why Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on Him has eternal life. And in John 6, 40, Jesus said, I will raise Him up on the last day. (laughs) I'm amazed at the fact that there are fewer and fewer funerals. Services. You know, people are having less and less funeral services now than they used to in the past. Somebody says, well, why is that? Well, people will tell you they don't want to go through all of the expense and they don't want to go through the burden and the trouble and all. I can't help but believe it's because people have no hope. The Scripture says in the Psalms that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. 
What is a funeral service for the saint of God but just a reminder of the hope that that believer has and the fact that this is not all she wrote for that believer but that we have hope that goes far beyond the grave and that hope is just as sure as the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. That's why a believer has no guilt in life. We have no fear in death. We're a winner either way. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this is the hope that we have, and it's more than just optimism. It's more than just a positive outlook. This is a profound certainty that you and I can live with as a child of God. It's not to say that we're guaranteed roses without thorns or a life free from pain, but it does mean that we build our lives on the solid rock. So here's the thing. When's the last time you stopped to really contemplate what it means to be a son or daughter of God now? In the midst of your trials, this is intended to be a soothing truth, a calming truth. You don't have to cave in to despair or depression. You have something to look forward to as a believer, and you're in possession of it now. That's why John says, beloved, we are God's children now. There are immediate benefits to being a member of the family of God. And so the experience then of our Christian hope, the expectation of our Christian hope, it's it's the fact that we're going to be made like Christ when we see Him as He is one day in future glory. And now notice one third and final thing, and it's the expression of this hope. How is it expressed? The fact that we have this hope it's not intended to be something that we sit on. We sing it's, it's our blessed assurance, but it doesn't mean I need to sit around on my blessed assurance. Are you tracking? Because listen to what John says in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So that word and at the beginning of verse 3 links the verse with the previous statement. What is it that John has just said? Well, this fact that we're the children of God now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. It's here that John is taking us all the way to the summit, to the mountain peak of future glory with Christ as we see him as he is one day and we'll be made like him. Glorified body, satisfied heart, purified mind in every way. It's this future aspect of our salvation that John is describing there in this verse. But then verse 3 begins with this word and. So lest we stay at the top of the mountain, John brings us back into the reality of the present, doesn't he? We know what we will be, but that day's not yet come. We're waiting for it with eager longing and anticipation, but that doesn't mean that I live my life with a sense of irresponsibility now. It doesn't mean that my life in this world is going to be easy. My hope leads me to live in a certain way. John says everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. So in just the space of a few brief words, John brings us from the mountain of glory to the plain of everyday life. But what we've seen on that mountain deeply affects us, doesn't it? 
What we do with what we've been given matters greatly. What we know about the future excites us. And it ought to translate into some incentive for life. You know what John does from verse 2 to verse 3? Reminds me of the text in Luke chapter 9 where the disciples had been on the Mount of Transfiguration there with Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they had witnessed the Lord transfigured. They saw him in all of his glory. They witnessed the dazzling display of power, unlike anything that they had ever seen. Moses and Elijah were there in glory. And so Peter, never one to remain silent, said that it was a good thing and they ought to build three tabernacles. Let's just stay here, Lord. Before he could finish speaking, there was a voice that came out of that cloud of glory that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, there was no one there but Jesus. And, I mean, it was a mountaintop experience of glory. Verse 37 of that same text, just the very next verse, Luke says, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a crowd met him. A man in the crowd had a son with an unclean spirit brought him to the disciples for healing, but they weren't able. I read that in that passage, and it's the contrast that really stands out to me in the text. How quickly we can go from the mountain of majesty to the plane of problems where we all live. We can come together for worship in the corporate sense and man, we can sing and we can preach and we can shout and we can enjoy each other's company and then Monday morning rolls around and it's the same old stuff. We can go from the mountaintop to the plane of problems just like that. Are we to expect anything else living in a fallen world? Listen to me. God don't want us to live with our heads in the clouds. He wants us to keep our feet on the pavement of discipleship. But what we know about the future, what we look forward to about the future, this hope that I have in Jesus Christ, listen, I'm to take that hope with me everywhere I go, even into the valleys of life, even as I deal with the junk and the stuff of life. There are wonderful experiences of awe, and worship in the presence of God on the mountaintops of life, but they've always got to translate into the ordinary, everyday planes of obedience. And that's what John is saying there in verse 3. Listen to verse 3 in a variety of translations. The King James says it this way, Every man who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. The NIV says it this way, All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way in the message, all of us who look forward to his coming, stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. The unmistakable point of the verse is that hope in Christ is a major factor in how we presently live. It's hope that's personal. Notice John says, everyone who has this hope. Aren't you glad that it's personal? Aren't you glad that it doesn't just apply to a select few within the Christian family? But this is the hope of every member of God's family. God's dealing with us on the personal level here. This is experiential. Everyone who hopes in Him. 
Society wants to deal with us on the group level. Society wants to assign us to some category. God deals with us on the individual level, even as he places us within his family as children. And you have this hope personally. You possess this hope. John says, everyone who thus hopes in him. And so your hope is really no better than the object of your hope. But if your hope is in him, how awesome is that hope? Because he won't fail you. He won't disappoint you. Our hope is fixed, founded in the eternal God of heaven. And John's point that it's really purifying. That word that he uses there, purify, it speaks of internal motive, not simply outward act. It's a type of mindset that's concerned with the mind, the heart, the spirit. The idea is that I avoid sin in my whole nature and whole being. I'm not simply concerned with actions, but attitudes. It means I have a deep desire within to be like Christ. It's the very desire that Paul expresses in the third chapter of Philippians when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, being like him in his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He goes on and says, not that I've already obtained it or am perfect already, but I press on to make it my own. The idea is he's so caught up in wonder of the fact that Christ has made him his own, such love and grace and hope. This is what now leads him to press on in greater obedience and greater sacrifice. And he knows that it's through suffering and he knows it's through pain and difficulty that he will one day arrive at the finish line of faith. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, he says, I press forward toward the goal. That's the same thing John's talking about in verse 3. Folks, isn't it just a wonderful yet mysterious way how the Holy Spirit uses even the struggles of life to strengthen us and build us up as he sanctifies us, purifies us, makes us more like Jesus? Some time ago, I read about the emperor moth and the way that it's transformed from a worm that crawls around in the dirt into a beautiful insect that flies through the air. You see, the thing is, its cocoon is shaped in a very unique way. And in order to develop into a perfect insect, that moth has to force its way through the neck of that cocoon in what really is hours of intense struggle. Entomologists explain that it's this pressure you know, of, of what happens there within the cocoon as the moth is emerging from the cocoon. This is nature's way, really God's way, of forcing life-giving substance into the wings of that emperor moth. Now, let's just suppose that you and I wanted to lessen the struggle and the trial of the moth, and so we decide, well, I'll take me some little snips and I'll lessen the struggle of this little creature. And with those snips, I were to snip away the restraining threads of that cocoon and make it easier for the moth to emerge. You don't know what would happen if I did that? The creature would never develop its wings. Because what would happen for a brief time before its death, it would simply crawl around, flop around pitifully on the dirt and die. 
But the thing is, if the moth would be allowed to finish that struggle, its life would be transformed into a thing of beauty. Now, isn't that just a wonderful illustration of the Christian life? Somehow, in a mysterious way, the Spirit of God uses all of our sorrows and all of our suffering and all of our headaches and puts us in a cocoon of transformation. And not even the the worst trials that life can throw at us can diminish our confidence in the promises of God. In fact, the more difficult our trials are in this life, often the brighter our hope becomes. That's why Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the future glory that's going to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to those things which are unseen. The things which are seen are transient. The things which are unseen are eternal. Now, here's the question. Is your hope in something that's seen and therefore transient? Or is your hope in something that's unseen and therefore eternal? How you answer that question really will determine the way you live your life.